While I'm getting ready, you might like to turn in your Bibles to that passage that we were looking at. That's um, page 1172. And then we'll just pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this evening, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through it. We thank you for Paul and all he wrote. Help us to understand what he's saying and help us to become more like Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, we're in this uh, second uh, session on uh, Ephesians, and uh, Paul wrote this letter to a group of believers who lived in this area of Ephesus in what is now modern Turkey. And of course, modern Turkey's in the news once again, perhaps for the wrong reasons. And many people, of course, will go to Turkey for holidays. But that's the sort of area we're in geographically. And this group of young Christians lived under the rule of Rome. They were a conquered people. Rome demanded taxes from them, and they were not free to govern themselves. Life was often short, that is life expectancy, and hard. They had turned to worship Jesus rather than the Roman gods or the Jewish god, and they were likely to suffer persecution because of it. So Paul writes them this letter to encourage them in their lives and their faith. And we started last week in this series with Alan bringing us chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and he reminded us that Paul is stating that these Christians and all followers of Christ had been chosen by God. So there was no question of different values or worth of Christians. There was no first-rate or second-rate or third-rate Christians because they'd all been chosen by God. And this leads us into verses 8 to 12 tonight where we read of the further encouragements given by Paul. And I believe as followers of Jesus tonight, we can too be encouraged in our faith by these words, especially when we come upon times of doubt or trouble. So Paul encourages them by referring not to the world and material gain, but to the spiritual world of God's plan, his purpose, and their calling to his kingdom. Now, before we see this encouragement, I think it's worth our while to note that Paul recognises that these Christians at Ephesus are blessed by God. Look at verses 3 and 4. And uh, verses 3 says, Praise be to the God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in this heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us. So they're they're blessed. So the question then for tonight then is, how does Paul encourage these young new followers of Jesus in Ephesus? 
Well, firstly, let us see what he doesn't promise them. There's nothing in this passage at all about them having the promise of a long and easy life. There's no promise of good health, no promise of certain financial standing or security, or even of good relationships. Well, that's in contrast, isn't it, to our times. Think of the adverts on TV. Think of the promises that the politicians and health officials make us. Think of all the things that our world would want and expect us to have if we were to have a good life. Each generation seems to desire and expect higher standards of living. But note, Paul makes no reference to possessions, money, or security. Paul is on a completely different level to this. It is a spiritual level rather than a worldly materialistic level. And so this begs the question then, what is the purpose of Paul's life and our lives? Well, if you look in verse 12, he declares that because he was chosen by God like them, so the purpose of his life is to praise God. And he can do this because he's safe within the plan of God and the family of God, because God has chosen him. And so Alan titled this, uh, this sermon tonight as Safe. Safe. We're safe in the family of God. So Paul's encouragement then comes within the context of God's plan to the world. We can see this in three ways within our passage tonight. First way is this. God's plan includes at the centre of it Jesus Christ. God's plan includes Jesus Christ at the centre of it. In fact, if you read this passage, you'll see that five times Jesus Christ is mentioned. He's right at the centre of Paul's encouragement. Jesus had been at the centre of God's plan before the world had actually begun. And God's plan included God's redemption, forgiveness uh, of man through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We see this in verse 7. And we see that God had provided for us the greatest gift possible, a way for mankind to be released from guilt and for mankind to come back into a relationship with God. And this is far more important to Paul than the transitory physical possessions of his society, which is why it's right at the top of his list. And this gift, of course, includes the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 7b. It's made possible through the death of Jesus on the cross and the spilling of his blood for us. And this is because, of course, God is gracious, that he gave us this gift. Now, to be gracious means to make something possible which, not, which is not deserved. In other words, God's grace is when God made possible our forgiveness. It was nothing that we could do on our own. No, we didn't deserve it. And it's really an enormous statement here that God will reveal this to us so we can be sure of it. Our sins forgiven for the now the present, the past, but also the future. And as a result of this forgiveness, we will be with the Father in eternity because Jesus died so that his blood will take that punishment 
for our wrongdoing. And this is the reason why Paul states that this will lead us to rejoice. So perhaps that's something that we can remind ourselves each day. Our hearts can rejoice, we can be encouraged, and we can worship God because Jesus Christ is the way of salvation, redemption, and forgiveness. Jesus Christ is the centre of the good news, which will encourage these new Christians in Ephesus and us today. But the second encouragement that Paul gives them is that, uh, the, that whilst God's wisdom is often beyond the ability of mankind to understand, God has revealed this, this wisdom to us through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Look what he says. He says this. When I can find, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment. So for Paul, the mystery of Christ is the will of God to save us through the death of Jesus. It wasn't known to mankind before the time of Christ, but has now been made known by the power of the Holy Spirit. We read also in chapter 3 of of Ephesians verse 5 the same thing, but in that verse he adds that the Holy Spirit will will make that known to us. And this isn't because this first century uh, group of people deserved it. No, it's because of the grace of God that he revealed it. So we've got that word again, grace, grace revealed. And God provided this by his will. This revelation involves the third member of the Trinity. We've already had God the Father involved in making the plan. We've had God the Son, Jesus, making that process possible through his death. And now we've got the Holy Spirit bringing it, making it known to mankind. So the whole of the Trinity is involved in this plan of God for humanity. And this should be a true encouragement for these young Christians. Their God and our God is unique, three in one, each one with a part to play in the plan of redemption, salvation for mankind. And when will this happen? Well, look in verse 10 when all things will be brought under the one head, Christ. Now, there can be a problem in this understanding of this word, fullness of time, in verse 10. When will this be? Well, some writers say it was was when Jesus was on earth. Some other writers say it's uh, from the time that Jesus was on earth to the present, and others say it's when he will come again in the second time. Well, surely it must include when Jesus lived because it was God's plan that he was to come to earth on a particular time to call the people. And this plan will continue. This will carry on. We read in the epistles, don't we, how people are being called ongoingly. And we know that people are still being called by God today. So there will be a new creation. Yes, Jesus will come again. There will be a second time. But this time will come, will include today we're being called, yesterday people were being called, 
and tomorrow people are being called. There will be a new creation. But you quite rightly will say, well, how can this help me when troubles come? Well, surely if we hold that this plan of God for salvation was carried out by Jesus' death on the cross and we can participate in this now, then we can rejoice that we have been called. We can be encouraged, but we can also be challenged if it's God's will that Jesus provides a way for mankind to come back to him. And this will happen, of course, in fulfilment when Jesus comes a second time. So the second encouragement then, that God's wisdom and God's will has been made known to us. The third encouragement given by Paul is that God's plan involves God choosing us, mankind. Now this is the, uh, the thing that... Uh, Alan slipped in at the end last, last, if you were here last week, and he said, Nigel will deal with predestination. Thank you very much. So this is the third challenge and the third encouragement that Paul brings to them. This whole idea, this doctrine of predestination and election. And we have referenced it to in this passage, if you look back at Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5 and verse 11. So it says in verses 4 to 5, For he chose us in him before creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything. So there we have it. Well, it's a controversial doctrine. Okay, and it's one that's divided Christians down throughout the ages. But note here, I think, Paul assumes the truth about election rather than arguing for its acceptance. And throughout the Bible, the writers argue for, uh, for God's sovereignty and man's responsibility under God's sovereignty. In other words... God is sovereign, which means he has the authority to act within his own character, and each person is morally responsible for deciding for or against God's plan. Now, one of the implications, of course, is uh, that in predestination is that God's grace is God's choice. Election is God's choice to save particular sinners, selecting them to receive every spiritual blessing in Christ, which is what the biblical word election means. Now this presents us with um, this theology which says a lot about uh, God, about his nature, his will, and man's situation. And we need to be clear that this theology makes sense only to those that believe in Jesus. It didn't make sense to us, it didn't make sense to me before we came to faith. And it's also, of course, as I said before, caused disagreement within the Christian church. There are those that follow it and those that find it unacceptable. And whole books have been written concerning this doctrine and its outworkings but I've only got a brief time to give you an overview. 
And I found, in trying to prepare this sermon, I found this book a useful guide to it. It's in the Bible Speaks Today series, The Message of Salvation, and I'll be quoting from it. Other um, great biblical leaders that have supported it are people like Calvin, Augustine, John Stott, just to name a few. Now, the basic underlying thought is that God was around before the universe was created. He knew what his creation would be like, that mankind would sin and so be separated from God. And therefore, God planned a way of salvation that would allow mankind to come back into relationship with him through the death of Jesus on the cross. God knew what was going to happen, that mankind would rebel from him and would not come to repentance through their own action. God would have to provide Jesus and God would know those that were going to accept this gift even before they were born because God can see throughout all of history until the end times. Remember, God stands outside time as we understand it. So then, that's the sort of basic uh, mindset of it. What's the evidence for this doctrine of God's selection? Well, there is evidence throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Scripture that God works in this way of choosing his people. In the Old Testament, we find many examples of how God does this. Think of Cain and Abel. Think how God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Think of Moses, of the way that God led his people out of slavery and into the promised land. Read the prophets who spoke of God's people being chosen, a land chosen, the coming of the Messiah chosen by God. See how Jesus called his disciples in the New Testament. They didn't choose to follow. No, they responded through free will to the call they were given. And then they had the free moral choice of whether to choose Jesus or not. But whether you look at the Old Testament or whether you look at the New Testament or the both of them, the results are the same. The people respond in praise to the holy and almighty God. We see that, of course, a lot, don't we, in the Psalms. And this is what Paul states here in verse 12. Why were we chosen? So that we can praise God, which, of course, is not what the world wants to do. Do you see how and why this doctrine is often unacceptable to non-believers? Because the emphasis is on God's choice. God's mercy and God's grace. And the end product is praise of God. Now, for many in the world, this is unacceptable. It makes no sense if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, how can you believe that God chose you if you don't believe that you are a sinner? So then, to conclude, that's what we've got. What we, when we make the choice to respond to God, it is only because he has already done the choosing. J.J. Packer writes this, The biblical doctrine of election is that before creation, God selected out, the human ra- out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem and bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. So, salvation can only be through grace, 
and not by the works of mankind. Now, if we are to grow in our faith, we need to understand this doctrine. We need to understand the objections that are made to it and to Paul's teaching. Now, as I stated, I haven't got time or perhaps the ability to give you all the objections and the reasons, explanations for them. And I'm not here standing trying to convince you to believe this doctrine. But I do think we need to consider it and we need to make up our minds about it. So what I want to do to finish off with, I just want to give you four of the common objections that are made to it and some of the answers that we can, uh, we can actually consider. So the first concern that is often given by Christians is, have I been selected by God? And it's a real worry if we believe that only through selection we can have eternity with God. Well, we have been selected if we're in Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we are perfect. We read in 2 Peter 1 verse 10, make our calling and election sure. We need to work, okay, to follow Christ. But that doesn't mean we haven't been selected. John Calvin wrote this, If we've been elected in him, that's Christ, we shall not find assurance within ourselves. Rather, Christ is the mirror wherein we must, and without self-deception, may contemplate our own election. In other words, we don't look at ourselves where there are doubts and issues of that. We look at Christ. Now, as I said, this book is quite useful. And there was a man called Donald Gray, who was an American um, preacher, who said this, and I think this is a really useful illustration to illustrate this, this issue. And it was helpful to me, and I hope it will be helpful to you. So he said this. Uh, to help you make sense of election. He asked them to imagine a cross like the one on which Jesus died, only so large that it had a door in it. Over the door were these words from Revelation, whosoever will may come. These words represent the free and universal offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is for everyone. Every man, woman and child who will come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus Christ and enter eternal life. On the other side of the door, a happy surprise awaits the one who believes and enters. For from the inside, anyone glancing back can see these words from Ephesians written above the door. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so election is best understood in hindsight, for it's only after coming to Christ that one can know whether one has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in eternity. In the words of the old 19th century hymn, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. Salvation does not come from the sinner's own choice, but from God's sovereign choosing. So that should be a wonderful encouragement to us. But the second uh, criticism or objection that people have is that, uh, what about justice and God's sovereignty? 
Well, the issue of God's justice isn't dealt with here in Ephesians 1, but it is in Romans 9, where Paul takes on God's mercy in relation to his people. In verse 14 of chapter 9, uh, Paul writes this, Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. Predestination isn't unjust, but rather shows God's mercy on fallen people. Then the third uh, complaint that's sometimes made about this is that uh, what about foreknowing or whether God has just known that we will decide to follow him? Well, the concept of foreknowledge is more than this. It means to choose beforehand or put it another way, God has purpose to bring it about. But this again depends upon God's grace because we know that as fallen people we will not be able to seek God by our own actions God's salvation depends upon God's mercy. And then lastly, the last criticism that's often made is that doesn't uh, this doctrine make evangelism unnecessary because God is going to call people whatever we do? No, election makes evangelism effective. We offer to all the hope of God's gift to them so that they can respond to God's calling on them. Now, I hope you've... Uh, been following what I've been saying because it's been a difficult passage and it's a difficult sermon it certainly was to write and deliver but I want to finish by going back to the beginning why is Paul writing this to these young Christians well he's writing it to encourage them to increase their faith and to praise God this doctrine of election should lead us to praise the holy and almighty God election is this, that's the purpose of it. So we praise him. It can lead to spiritual arrogance. We are chosen by God, but it shouldn't happen. It should lead to spiritual humility and uh, obedience because it's not only by God's, it's only by God's unmerited favour that we are saved and not by anything that we have done to deserve it. Ephesians 1 verse 4 The reason God chose us was to be holy and blameless in his sight. Understood correctly, this uh, this leads to joy and praise of God. And this first chapter of uh, Ephesians exudes joy and thankfulness for the glory of God's grace shown to us. So, this evening, if you are a follower of Jesus, be encouraged tonight. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you are confused by Paul's teaching or my speaking, then do take the opportunity to speak to Alan. Sign up to Christianity Explored. (laughs) Or come to prayer at at the front at the end of the service. But I think that we can, you know, if we're followers of Jesus, we can thank God for his calling us to him. And we can respond in faith and we can have the certainty of God's eternity with him because he called us and he provided Jesus. Jesus went to the cross for us. Amen.